Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today alone in the intro, but Lance is in the interview with author John Madinger. John has had a long and impressive history as a federal agent, and he's had an impressive career as an author as well so far. And uh, he's written a new book called Going Under, Kidnapping, Murder, and a Life Undercover. It's a great book, really interesting, and the conversation with John is fantastic. So get yourself a copy. There's links in the show notes. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the podcast, John Madinger. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. And no matter how many times we do this and we have people like yourself on, you're a retired law enforcement official. Uh, you're a world traveler, according to your website. You're an award-winning author. I always get intimidated, no matter how many times, because you cover everything that we talk about and you're an expert. And it's this nervous anxiety that I always have. So, well, thanks. I'll try not to make you too nervous. <laughs> it's too late. You're also a golfer, <laughs> right? You're a very good golfer. Ah, uh, well, I try. I watch golf professionally. So, there's that. Gotcha. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Taking time out of your, uh, your, your day to. Uh... Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, you're. Big day. Congrats on the release of your new book, which has been released today. It's called Going Under, Kidnapping, Murder, and a Life Undercover from Wild Blue Press. So congrats on that. Well, thanks. It's a great story, and I want to get into it. But first, I want to know a little bit more about you first. Tell us okay. about your career, if you don't mind. Well, I started out as a, a state narcotics agent in Oklahoma. I worked, worked uh, here in Oklahoma for a couple of years, and then I, I got hired on at State Narcotics in Hawaii, and I worked there for 10 years after that. And when I got burned out from working dope after all, those, all that time, I went to the Treasury Department, where they immediately signed me to the Organized Crime uh, Drug Enforcement Task Force, and I worked narcotics for another 10 years after that. 
and uh, I retired, finally retired. Federal retirement is, uh, law enforcement retirement is mandatory and at age 57. So that's when I left the federal government. Then I worked as a advisor for the Treasury Department, uh, financial crimes advisor for a Treasury since then. And most of that's doing international training and uh, assistant, providing assistance to overseas law enforcement agencies. So yeah, I got around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, you certainly did. When you were a state narcotics agent, you said you burned out and then you went into the, well, what did you say you did after that? Yeah, I went to the tre- federal treasury department. So you went to the federal treasury department also in the narcotics division? Yeah, I worked for... Uh, IRS criminal investigation, and I did money laundering cases for for them. Uh, became a something of an expert on money laundering. In fact, I wrote the textbook that's used for the federal federal government for a money laundering investigation. And it was it was it was different. It wasn't exactly doing narcotics, even though all my cases were were drug cases. But um, but money laundering is kind of a different approach. So that's what I did for them. And what was it about the narcotics that appealed to you to get into that in the first place? Oh, I was I was interested in being in law enforcement. I got a degree in criminal justice. And um, when I got out of school, I was looking for something in law enforcement. I didn't feel like I wanted to do patrol. Um, I, so I kind of didn't really. I was looking for other opportunities outside of that in, in investigation. And the, the job with Oklahoma came up. So took that. Was it a particularly dangerous department to be in? More so than another department? Well, it's, we're talking about the 19, late 1970s now, mid to late 1970s is when I started. And it, it was more dangerous back then. It was, it was a more dangerous job, especially the undercover side. Um, it's changed a lot over the years since then. And the um, the risk has gone way down because the administrative controls and the structure of the undercover um, is, is is much much higher now, and so they've eliminated a lot of the risk. They took all the fun out of it, but but they did eliminate a lot of the risk. And 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 I I knew personally several people who uh, agents who were killed. Um, in fact, I dedicate the book to to uh, some of them. And, and I know, you know, it, it still happens, but it doesn't happen as much as it did back in the, in the seventies, lost a lot of cops in the seventies. Mm. Wow. And uh, what was your, I guess, favorite uh, department that you worked in law enforcement? I liked working at, at uh, OBN, the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics. Um, it was, it was a, you know, entry-level job for me, and I was working the streets. I couldn't believe they paid me to do it. It was so much fun. You know, I had a good time. Um, and then when I went to State Narcotics, eventually I, I, I did the same thing there, and um, eventually I got promoted into management, and after about five years of that, I was like, yeah, enough of that, and I, I, that's why I took the job with the feds, because it was, I, I could go back to being an investigator, and I, I, enjoyed that more than than doing um you know the administrative stuff and the management stuff i want to be responsible for other people's problems you know just 
my own. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, and then you transitioned into writing. I think it's really cool that you've written some textbooks too. You wrote a, a textbook called Confidential Informant. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Right. Yeah, I wrote that uh, after I wrote the first uh, first edition of the Money Laundering book. They, they've done three editions of that one. And the Confidential Informant book, I, was, I wanted to try and uh, because informants are such a critical part of of drug enforcement in particular. Um, every case is going to have an informant. We used to have a saying that um, good case, a good informant, good case, bad informant, bad case, no informant, no case. And um, and that's really true of, of a lot of these things. And that's how law, law enforcement gets a lot of uh, cases solved is through informants. So I wanted to kind of um, write the book to uh, help people that were getting into the profession uh, understand how to how to use this really valuable tool, and uh, I, I thought it was pretty good, uh, pretty good introduction to that topic. And if you're ever at like a dinner party and people start talking about money laundering and they don't know your background or they talk about confidential informants and then you give your two cents and they maybe disagree with it. Do you then say, well, I wrote the book on it, literally? <laughs> yes, I have said that, <laughs> as a matter it. of fact. <laughs> yeah, I have said that. Um, people are very interested in money laundering because it's a great problem to have. You know, you've got like a, a million dollars or Walter White from Breaking Bad, where he's got $80 million to launder. Um, everybody would like to have that problem. And so people want to know, well, how, how would you do it? How would you go about it? So not supposed to be my money laundering books, not supposed to be a textbook for how to, you know, one of those <laughs> money laundering for dummies kind of things. But good story about that, though. I got a call one morning from one of the guys in, in, in the office. It was a customs guy. And he said, we're out doing a search warrant. And, uh, and we just found your book copy. The guy had a copy of your book. And I said, which one? And he said, the money laundering book. I go, well, did I sign it for him? <laughs> Fortunately, I hadn't. So I guess he picked it up on eBay or whatever. And Wow. But he was sort of trying to reverse engineer the... Yeah, uh... he was trying to get ahead with it, you know, and I yeah, give him credit for, um, for his uh, intellectual pursuit of uh, trying to get through the whole money laundering, <laughs> solve the whole money laundering problem. The other thing I've, I've got from that, which has been kind of interesting is is I got a lot of calls from, once I, I was published with that textbook, I got a lot of calls from the media, especially after uh, the 2016 election. I probably got a hundred calls from reporters wanting to know um, if this, whatever it was that Trump did was money laundering, was, was whether he was a crook or not. And I'm like, okay, well, let's hear what you got. So I, I heard all the stories about, about Trump from, you name it. I mean, like, must have been at least, like I say, I must have got at least 100 calls. And so it's funny because I, after a while, I could go, no, I heard that one already. That's not money laundering. And, or, you know, he's, he's hooked up with these Kazakh businessmen and they're doing this thing in Moscow and I'm like, nope, not money laundering, but here's what you got to do to have that. And I explained to him what you, what they need and, and uh, never got, uh, never got one to give me a real money laundering scenario with, with Trump, but it was, it was fun. It lasted like two, two years. They were still trying after two or three years. <laughs> 
That's wow. that's really fascinating. Um, I also think that it's really funny the story that you told before that the guy probably picked up your book on eBay, which just shows that he probably Googled how to money launder. Yeah. Well, I can say it's not supposed to be a how-to guide, but but you I, I've told this to people that I've I've I, I've done a lot of international training. We we put on money laundering uh, investigation schools. All I've done it in over 20 countries all over the world. And I've told the management people at Treasury and Justice Department both that I did the schools for. I go, you need to be careful who you're inviting to these deals because I cannot teach this subject without teaching them how to launder money. And in some countries in the world, the third world mainly, um, the, the main source of money to launder is stolen funds, you know, from government officials, public corruption and stolen assets from the, the government or the, the people of that country. So I, I said, look, you guys got to be careful about who you invite to these things, because are there really 40 people in Guam was one of the places where I was like, do we really have to teach 40 people in Guam how to launder money? especially since our office just busted the governor. Um, you know, I don't know if that's right the, the right way to go about it, but you can't really t teach the subject without teaching them how to do it. That's interesting. And uh, so tell us about your, um, your new book, Going Under. What, uh, what inspired you to write that? Well, I had a lot of good stories. I mean, all cops got good stories. You know, after, after you've got a career in law enforcement, you're going to meet all kinds of strange people and you're going to have all kinds of weird situations and you go on a forum to tell it. And a lot of cops write books and, and memoirs so to talk about their experience. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got some pretty good stories. And so I thought I'd tell them in this format and got, got Wild Blue to pick it up. So I'm happy with it. I think it turned out pretty good. And what exactly is your process when you're approaching a writing project like this? Because I can imagine that a lot of the material you're writing about, and like you said, you dedicate to you dedicate the book to fallen law enforcement officers. So there's going to be some emotional stuff going on there. What's your process in sort of collecting that material and then putting it together in a narrative? Well, I think if you read this book, you'll see that it, it follows a case that we that I had I was assigned a case in uh, 1977 in Oklahoma um, that wasn't a drug case it was a was a kidnapping case and so I follow that investigation with that I did with a highway patrol officer here in Oklahoma Pat Grimes and we follow, follow that case all the way through to the to, to when it ended and then it goes on to continue um, with a a different uh, investigation that I wasn't involved in, but it it did ultimately was part of became part of the book, which was the escape and uh, spree killing by two uh, Oklahoma State Penitentiary inmates, um, Claude Dennis and Michael Lancaster, in 1978. So I mean that was sort of the thread that I followed through the thing, and then I tried to relate my experiences to each of those scenarios and, and talk about, I wanted to give people an idea about what it was like to work undercover back then. Like I say, it's changed a lot in the years. It's not, not the same, things, things aren't the same, but um, what I wanted to give as accurate a picture as I could of that experience. 
and that was kind of the purpose of it. How have things changed from uh, from back then, 1978, in working undercover? Honestly, the the administration. Uh, this isn't true necessarily of all police departments, but the management or the administration of the law enforcement agencies. Um, they just came to the correct conclusion, which was this is just too risky to do as a routine thing. Um, it's it's there's just too much built in risk. And we used to say this, you know, there's no deal worth doing, the, 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 no deal that's worth getting hurt over and are killed over. But but we didn't believe it. I mean, honestly, we didn't believe that. And we, so we would put ourselves in and did I did it all the time. Uh, in situations that I look back on it and I go, I was just lucky to get out of that thing alive. And, and management finally figured out, it took a lot of debt undercovers, actually. Um, I, I estimate at least 50 uh, that they were like, no, nah, this is just, you, you just, we can't afford to put people in this kind of situation for little piddly ass, excuse the expression, drug deals, you know, or any other deals. We need to use it more, more focused, more targeted, more in um, aimed at a higher value uh, targets that make the risk more worthwhile. And so they've done everything they can to eliminate the risk um, that I talk about in, in the book where we, we would just go out and, okay, the informant comes in, he says the uh, magic words, I've got this deal, this guy that can do this thing. we make sure I had enough money on me and we'd go out and do it without any other preparation at all. And I mean, we'd go into places where we had no idea who was there, no idea whether the guy was, was who he was, who he's claiming to be, whether he was armed, we did nothing like that. Today, that wouldn't happen. Right? In, at least at the federal level, probably most of the state agencies too, it just would not happen that way. They would make the people, um, uh, they would they would regulate that deal down so that all the risk, as much of the risk as they could get, would be taken out of it. Uh, that's the big difference between then and now. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Oh, 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 you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. 
Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnum Town. Varnum Town is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is uh, one of the questions I had for you, and I'm excited to ask. You said that they correctly made the right decision to change some of the policies so that it was less dangerous. And then you said you didn't believe it was too dangerous at the time. Why didn't you believe it was too dangerous at the time? And was that sort of the collective thought with everybody that you worked with was maybe, yeah, I'll let you answer. Why, why wasn't it in your head too dangerous? Um, because I was 23 years old and stupid. I mean, you're, that's what you are. You're immortal when you're 23 years old, you're going to live forever and you know, nothing bad is going to happen to you and, and bad stuff happened. I was there when, when people were shot, you know, I shot a guy uh, that I was working undercover and I was there when, when one of our agents, he had done the deal and had gone back out to his car to let the surveillance know that he was on his way out. And one of the crooks inside the house had overheard him talking on the on the radio or overheard the radio in the car and went back inside and told the crook that had just done the deal that that you know the guy's a cop and the the dude instead of like taking the loss jumped in his car and followed him and and jumped out with the pistol when he was meeting up with the surveillance guys and and they shot him 17 times now that kind of stuff happened you know and it happened more than once while I was while I was working um, so I knew that it could go wrong, but it was just like, yeah, it's worth it, worth, worth it to take a chance. I'll take a chance. And, and, uh, even though we told each other, no, you know, it's not worth getting hurt over. We, we still did the deals. We still went out and did it. And I can imagine there has to be some element of adrenaline that you get addicted to when you're in these situations. Oh, it's a definite rush doing this thing. You just never know. You're, you're totally reliant on your own wits. You're by yourself. Most of the time I worked by myself. I didn't have anybody working with me. Um, the backup was was there, maybe not, depending on whether the transmitter that I was wearing was broadcasting. Sometimes I didn't even have backup. I went out without any kind of backup at all. Um, and, you know, my boss would, would maybe know where I was. Um, you know, it was you were freewheeling. It was told you're totally reliant on yourself. And it was, it was a complete rush and I couldn't do it forever, but um, it was, it was a good experience. Um, I didn't do any of the ones um, like you see in the departed. You guys seen the departed, the movie, Um, terrific film, total fantasy, but, (laughs) but a great movie and that guy was deep cover right he was um he was in the role operating in the role for an extended period of time i didn't do those i was like in and out to to do specific deals those are the more common ones these days or the more deep 
deep cover kind of things because it's real expensive to do them now. Um, you should see how the FBI and the uh, IRS and DEA do theirs now. It's way more complex and, and structured. The IRS does undercover operations? Oh, yeah. That's sure. the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, their, their stuff, a lot of our stuff was uh, for money laundering, money laundering cases. We would go, they call them pickup operations, where we would go, the Colombians mostly, but the Mexicans too, are trying to get large amounts of cash, big, big amounts of cash, multi-million dollars out of the United States where the consumers are and back down to Mexico or Colombia. So they would, we would set up, um, and DEA and Customs did this too, we would set up operations where we would poses money launderers and pick up the cash and then we would get it into a bank account or whatever and transfer it down to Colombia, see where the money went. You'd be able to follow the money down to the to the source down in, in Colombia or Mexico. So that was the kind of undercover operations that IRS was doing. Now I, I know they they do it in tax cases, but I never worked tax cases, so I don't really know too much about those. But most of ours were money laundering or mine were mine were money laundering. How do you pose undercover as someone who's trying to accept uh, money for a money laundering scheme? For my cases, it always came down to the informant. So the informant's like critical in an undercover. It always was in my deals. Um, was So it depends on what the informant is. You know, you, you get this person and if the informant is a money launderer, then you become their assistant or their, you know, whatever their whatever their role is whatever fits with their role and and that's already baked in so you don't really have a whole lot of choice over that um you have some guys like joe Castellan from the fbi that's donnie brasco was the was his character i mean he, he just portrayed himself to be a mafia mobster associate from another town when he came in and was hanging out with the new york guys so you know, it's all going to depend on the case and going to depend on the on the uh, circumstances. But for me, it was almost always going to be based on on the undercover. The undercover's, I mean, the informant. The informant's going to have to say, "Look, this is my friend John. He's a drug dealer. Um, he he's he you know wants to pick up some speed or he wants to pick up some heroin." So I would rely on that under on that informant to get to that level with the crook. So does that answer your question? I mean, that's what I'm trying to trying to get across is, is I didn't really have that much control over that. And I didn't have a persona that I was, you know, some days I would go undercover two, three times a day, different, different cases, different people. And um, so, you know, I, I didn't have, oh, this is the guy from so-and-so. I had to fit whatever the circumstances were. Did you ever want to go deeper undercover? I had one deal where we were going to, uh, this was when I was in Oklahoma and we were going to set up a uh, storefront and we were going to sell uh, laboratory supplies like chemicals and glassware and electronic, you know, equipment. And we were going to sell that. And hopefully we would get the people that were manufacturing uh, clandestine operating clandestine labs would come and, and purchase from us. And then we would be able to track that purchase to wherever they were operating the lab. So 
Uh, we had that all, we were in the process of setting that all up. We had an informant, good informant that was uh, working with us on it. And um, I got sent to DEA school in uh, Washington for, for uh, 10 weeks. And while I was up there, <laughs> my agency busted the informant in a lab, <laughs> operating clandestine lab. So he was kind of two-timing us on that. And so we had to abandon the abandon that project because we didn't know if he'd compromised it. But yeah, that would have been my, my deep cover experience would have been doing something like that. And I don't want to give away, you know, spoilers from your book, but one of the stories is titled the bright green, the big bright green pleasure machine. Well, yeah. And it's, it's hard to look away from that when you, when you have a copy of this and you're looking at the chapters and I need to ask you about this. Can can you go into some detail without giving the whole thing away? It wasn't my case so much. I think you remember from the from reading the the book that I sort of came into this thing late. But it was a it was a, a agent that we worked with um, that I worked with a lot, um, James Jimmy Birdsong, and he had busted a a, a DC four coming in from. South America with uh, 17,000 pounds of marijuana on board, which was at the time, it was like the biggest um, marijuana ba- marijuana case or seizure in, in the United States. This was 1976, so it was before all of the really big things happened. But, um, but he busted that guy and uh, busted that load, took that load off, and then it was about 10 guys that they, they arrested with the, with the plane down in Ardmore, Oklahoma. The guys that were behind it was the, was a family down in El Paso, Texas, called the Shagras, Shagra brothers, Jimmy Shagra, Joe Shagra, and Lee. Lee was the attorney. Lee and Joe were both attorneys. Lee was a high-powered drug, drug lawyer, and he eventually got killed in a um, drug-related homicide. But my, case, my part of that case was uh, we had burned the the evidence after the case was over and that episode was not one of our finer moments we insufficiently destroyed uh, the evidence and then uh, the, the crooks found it and started mining our the site where the where we had done the destruction and I actually wound up buying some of that same some of that same pot undercover. Um, and it was like, you could smell the diesel on it. That was the, uh, that we had used to, to flame all this stuff. And so it was, you know, it was, I was peripherally involved in this case. And, and at the same time that I was doing this, the Shagra brothers were under a lot of pressure down in Texas and they got indicted, and they they had um, they were they were charged with marijuana marijuana smuggling conspiracy, and they uh, they they made an attempt to assassinate the U.S. attorney, and and then they made a, they successfully assassinated a federal judge. The um, hitman in the case was um, the father of uh, Woody Harrelson, the the actor, and. 
So I was perfectly involved in this because I was buying dope that came directly from the Chagras, but it came through us actually at the end of the, at the end of the line. Um, we were, we were responsible for getting it out there because we didn't destroy their dope right the first time. So we had to do it again. Well, I, I do think it's a really interesting uh, part of it is because of that connection to Woody Harrelson. And I believe in the book, no country for old men, that, moments referenced in there that his the this person's assassinated and and i don't know if woody harrelson i don't know if the name is referenced but i just found it fascinating that we're actually talking to someone who's got some sort of connection to that moment that i always thought was a really fascinating moment in pop pop culture that woody harrelson would be in the movie version of no country for old men that the book references what his dad did well and you know here's something else that's kind of like weird about this is that Remember, I mentioned earlier that that the case that the book involves a couple of cases, and one of them is the the escape by Claude Dennis and and Michael Lancaster from McAllister, and then those guys, those two inmates, went on a killing spree all over uh, Oklahoma, North Texas, far away as Alabama. They, they're still not sure exactly how many people they killed. I think it was eleven, and so it was a bunch. Wasn't Woody Harrelson in Pulp Fiction? No, I don't think he was in Pulp Fiction. Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Natural Born Killers. That's the one I'm thinking of. Natural yeah. Born Killers. Well, I, I've heard that the, that it came out like in the early 80s. And I've heard that that was based on the Michael Lancaster and uh, Claude Dennis um, as being the Natural Born Killers. The story was they escaped from prison and whatever. So I've heard that. So there's actually a double Harrelson connection here for this for this book. A double Woody connection. And I went to the same college as uh, Woody in, in uh, Indiana. So there, there's three connections. A triple Woody connection. A triple Woody. <laughs> <laughs> First time that's ever been stated on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> oh, you mentioned... Jimmy Birdsong, and that was one of the individuals that you also dedicated the book to. I think that was the first individual on your list of dedications. How close were you to him? Uh, he was a senior agent when I started, and I worked a lot of undercover for him. He was a pretty distinctive guy. He was six foot six and over uh, 300 pounds and big personality, very um, well known, especially um, where I worked, a lot of cases was on the east side of Oklahoma City, which is mostly black area. And uh, and he, he knew everybody over there and everybody knew him. Very big, very big character. And so I, I, uh, I talked about him quite a bit in there. He had a good, he taught me a lot, good agent, really good agent and a, a great guy. Uh, he's gone now. Do you sometimes wonder how you... Uh survived your time um yeah i look back on it and wonder whether i mean a lot of times i talk about this a couple of times in the book where i just did stupid things and and got away with it and a lot of this stuff a lot of stuff i did was you know i look back on it and go yeah it should not have done that and it should not have survived that and and i mean i don't, I don't want to sound melodramatic about it or anything but but it really was, a, there really were situations where I can look back on it now and go, oh, man, dodge the bullet on that one, you know? It happened a lot. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, Honor the grit of those searching for justice and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. All right, tell us a little bit more about this um, this case about the two escapees. How did they escape the Oklahoma State Penitentiary? Um, they got out through a tunnel that was uh, that was under the wall. They didn't dig it. It was one of those maintenance tunnels or whatever, and it was supposed to be blocked at the other end. And they had cut their way through that and got over a fence. Uh, they went to a, the house of a of a uh, one of the corrections officers and broke in and took the, his wife and daughter hostage briefly until they got all the guns out of the house and stole the car and took off. And then they were, they were gone for like a month after they busted out and maybe three weeks a month, something like that. And, and they just raised hell all over Southern Oklahoma. People were, people were scared to death over here because, because these guys were not the two, you know, they were not the kind of prison escapees that want to, get out and hide out and don't be found or anything. These guys were out there to kill as many people as they could before they got caught. They knew they were going to get caught eventually. And they, they just wanted to take as many cops with them as they could. They shot at least, they shot at least five cops. I I know of and killed three. Wow. So bad boys all around. Yeah. And these were thrill killings essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was all they were doing. It was just, it was just, just thrill killings. And that's what the papers called them too, thrill killers. But, but I mean, they just had. It was just, it was just evil. They just had no interest in being decent people anymore. And what were they in prison for originally? Well, at least one of them was in for murder. 
um, murder or manslaughter. And I think the other one was in for armed robbery, but they were both killers. They, they'd done it before. So everybody figured when they got out, when they got out of there, everybody figured this is, these guys are going to be, there's going to be blood before this is over. Right. Kind of a uh, explosive combination. It sounds like how, how did they even meet each other? I think they met in prison. They met at McAllister. Right. Yeah, the Mc, McAllister had a terrible reputation back at the back in the seventies. They'd been taken over by the feds um, because the federal judge said conditions are unconstitutional, and there'd been a prison riot there. I think on seventy three, and I mean, it'd been the worst one of the worst prison riots in American history. So it was a bad place. I mean, there were bad bad guys there. Um, and, and these guys hooked up together and had a common interest in killing people and got found a way to indulge it. So two questions for you. With all of your experience, what's one positive takeaway that you have and what is one negative takeaway that you have? I mean, positive as in about undercover or about the drug war? <laughs> the drug war is lost. We're not gonna, that's a... Is that a negative takeaway? We're not going to win that thing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's one takeaway. But, you know, I've met really good people uh, that, that weren't dedicated people, the people that wanted to do the right thing, um, that wanted to get the, uh, the job done and help people. Uh, so I met a lot of good people. That was a really positive thing for me over the years. Made you know, good friends. Some of them aren't with us anymore. But um, overall, I mean, I was glad to have had the chance to, to do what I did. I don't know if I could do it again, but I'm a lot older now, so don't have to. And I don't know, does that answer your question? I'm trying to positives? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, just knowing that you feel like you're, you came out of it a better person with more knowledge and more intuition and just a better view of the world or a more informed view of the world, I think, uh, is something that, that you've said in, in different ways throughout the interview. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I, I, um, a lot of, a lot of, I feel like was a waste, honestly, uh, because I don't know that I made that much difference in overall. I talk about some I talk about some cases and people that in the book that uh, the reader will recognize, you know, that I, that I know that they'll, uh, you know, like Elvis Presley, I talk about my sort of peripheral involvement in his, his case. So I don't know that I, that I or anybody else made any difference to, to Elvis or to anybody else that's, that's been a victim of, of drug abuse so so that's kind of sets poorly with with me after all these years as well you know did i kind of waste my time on all this stuff did i take all these chances for for nothing uh, you know and i i wonder if if i'd been one of the people that in the dedication that didn't make it to the end whether it would have been worth anything whether it would have been worth the cost Unfortunately, I never had to find out, but kind of now, 
now I kind of wonder, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like the, uh, the writing is probably something that will live on past all of us and the account is there. So if anything at all, the account is there. You have, you literally wrote the book on things that are, are illegal, you know, like how to, how to identify these things. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a waste. I always appreciate people who try to do the right thing and stand up for, uh, stand up for, um, I don't want to say like law and order, but stand up for order for to stand up for maintaining civility. Well, I felt like we did that and, you know, it was, it was what our society wanted at the time, what the, the price they were willing to pay to, to get it. And, uh, and I was willing to work, to work under those conditions. So uh, I felt like that was a, was a good career for me and led to good things I mean, like 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 you say it led to the the money laundering expertise and, and the, the the book that i wrote on that subject got me to got me the notice that i could get uh picked up by treasury and justice to go do their international training so got to see the whole world you know, i've been all over the world been on every continent Except Antarctica, not much money to launder in Antarctica. <laughs> not but, a lot to uh, do there. No, those penguins don't spend like Walter White or anything. So. <laughs> uh, but I got to do all that stuff, and that was that was cool. Yeah, and actually, I just ordered the book on money laundering because Tim and I make well over eighty million dollars, and we got to figure <laughs> out what to do with all this podcasting money. So we'll we'll circle back on that later. Yeah, what a great problem to have, though. You know, you're sitting there right? on a pile of eighty million dollars, and, and yep. uh, you know, I mean, you could have bigger, worse problems than that in your life. You could have eighty-five cents. So. <laughs> I think I'd rather have the 85 million. It's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what's next for you, John? Are you, are you uh, planning another book? Yeah, I actually have a book that, um, that Wild Blue has picked up and I've got, now I have to actually have to write it, but <laughs> that's a really interesting story too, because that's about the guy who first brought fentanyl to the United States. And, you know, we have a real fentanyl problem now here in the country, uh, people overdosing, 100,000 people dying every year. And this guy's the first one that got it commercially on the market in 1991, 1993. And really super interesting character. And I met him originally in 1978 when I was working at OBN. And he was the guy who was going to be the informant on the on our undercover operation, the, the sting operation that we were going to run with the, the lab up down in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, our laboratory supply company. And and he was and I he was the one that was he taught me basically everything I needed to know about how to run a clandestine lab. And he's considered by DEA to be the best clandestine chemist they've ever encountered that they've ever run into. So really interesting guy, really interesting story. And um, that book's going to be out in uh, probably mid middle of next year. Have to write the thing first. That is a crazy story. That is a story that needs to be told. 
So really looking forward to that. Yeah, and that's really only about, I've only told you about 10% of it. The rest of it, if you could, if, well, when you see it, you, you just won't believe it. You can't believe that it happened. I mean, this has got, this has got um, a lot of people in it that you'd recognize also. Uh, one, of the, one of the big characters is Whitey Bulger and, um, and he's involved in this thing. So really, um, a really good story. And I think it's going to be, uh, that's going to have some, some impact because, because of the fentanyl thing that we're having, the fentanyl problem that we're having right now, uh, very topical. Yep, absolutely. Do you have a potential title in mind for this? Lethal doses. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, lethal doses. That's the, the guy who brought, met the band who brought fentanyl to America. That's tentatively the title. I found out from Wild Blue that they pick your title, so. Oh, do they? That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much say in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, so where should where is the best place for listeners to get a copy of your book? Well, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can get it from Wild Blue Press, which is wildbluepress.com. Just came out, uh, started to do, like you said at the beginning, just, just released today. So be plenty of time. Uh, I think people enjoy it. I think it's got a got some humor in there. It's got some, some sad parts. And, uh, you know, it's like life itself, really. It's going to be one of those things where you, sometimes you're laughing and sometimes you're crying and sometimes you're scared to death. And hopefully at the end of it, you're, in the same condition you you were when you started maybe a little smarter <laughs> <laughs> well that is definitely true there's a lot of revealing parts in going under and a lot of it you just kind of shake your head at too yeah there's a couple good stories in there where you where i was like dude did this really happen this way and, and and it did you know the guy that well i went undercover with for a really really short time this was really um short-term undercover assignment and didn't intend to go undercover with this guy but we were parked in a i was my government car was a ford ltd and which looks just exactly like a cop car because that's what all the cops were driving at the time and i put a, a taxi sign on top of it just to um give it a little bit of cover and we were sitting in a parking lot waiting for our deal to go. And this, all of a sudden, the door opens up, the back door opens up. And this Australian guy climbs in the back. He says, take me over to Hilton, right? And, and I'm like, okay, well, I can't have a big, and he's drunk. And I can't have a big discussion with this guy because, you know, don't want to call attention to yourself. So I said, okay, no problem. I'll take you over to the, the Hilton, which we could see from where we were. So we drove over and dropped him off at the, the front of the thing. And he wants to try and pay me. We don't have a taxi meter or anything. And I said, no, no, that's okay. It's, uh, no, it's courtesy service. And uh, besides it's Anzac Day. And he goes, mate, Anzac Day is in, in April. This is October. And I go, yeah, but that's how you do it down in the Southern hemisphere. Up here in, in uh, 
the Northern Hemisphere, and we we celebrate Anzac Day in October. And the guys like stand there going, what, what, but, but, I mean, that's like saying we're celebrating July 4th in December, right? Because it's you know, the Australian National Day. And, and we said, eh, thanks very much, and took off. But, but that was like, um, I mean, I got a couple of stories like that in there where just try to be, try to be, um, try not to take the, the job or yourself as seriously as, as you can. You take yourself as lightly as you can. Obviously, some things you don't have control over, but um, I did. I tried not to take myself too seriously, and that I tried to get that across in the book, and I hope it came through. Yeah, I think it did. Definitely some humor infused in these pages, so uh, it's uh, it's a great book, and I I hope all of our listeners pick up their own copy. Well, I do too, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, John, this has been great speaking with you here today. We really appreciate your time, especially on release date. So congrats again on your new book. Well, no, and, and uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio.